Get to Old Navy today. All tees, all shorts, and all dresses are on sale now for 50% off. That's right. Get 50% off all tees, 50% off all shorts, and 50% off all dresses. Get the styles you want most right now with shorts from just $12 for adults, $8 for kids. Tees start at just $7 for adults, $6 for kids. Don't miss out. Hurry into Old Navy and OldNavy.com. Valid 619 to 626. Excludes in-store clearance, active, licensed, men's packaged flag styles. Welcome to The Masogi Method with work happiness expert Jody B. Miller. Each week, Jody introduces you to amazing people who have broken through huge barriers to achieve meaning, success, and happiness in their lives. For every one of us, the path to lasting joy has always been there, but it may take a Masogi to get you on it. Jody did it, her guest did it, and now you can too. Here's your host, Jody B. Miller. Hi everyone, I'm Jody Miller, your host of the Masogi Method, breaking barriers to achieve lasting happiness, success, and meaning in your life, both in your work and your personal lives. I am beyond excited today to have Rick Scott on with us. Rick Scott is the guru of counseling. So if any of you are in a relationship and you're trying to figure out how to make it work better, how to get make that love stronger, or how to fix it if it's falling apart, Rick Scott is your guy. He has a master's in counseling. He has a PhD in marriage and family therapy. And Rick, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's nice to be here. I'm so glad you're here. So Rick is based out of Northern California in the lovely town of Mill Valley. And I've known Rick for a long time, and I think he's amazing. And he will be our resident psychologist or therapist that we'll have on every so often about different issues that couples, individuals, families, even corporate executives are facing. I mean, Rick, you've been counseling now for a long time. I have, yes. Uh, probably 25 years or thereabout. Wow. So how do you answer that, all those statistics? I mean, the latest one I looked at was that one divorce happens every 13 seconds. Amazing, isn't it? It is. <laughs> I think it was up to 50%. It's, a, it's incredible. And a big thing about a Masogi is that it has to have a 50% or greater chance of failure, which um, marriages do. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Marriage does. There's no doubt about it. Yeah. So, so when you first start working with, is it mostly couples that you're dealing with? It's mostly couples these days. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay. So, so they come into your office and they, and they sit down and, and is can you just tell right away? I mean, you've been doing this for so long. Can you just feel the tension right away? Is, that, is it mostly like they're trying to fix the relationship or they're trying to um, get over something? I mean, what, what seem to be the most common things you sense and then you see? Um, well, you know, most people come in in a state of distress because for some reason or not, they're, you know, their relationships aren't working. When they're working, they're not here. With, with one exception, I do a good bit of uh, premarital therapy. So... I'll get people who are interested in troubleshooting um, before they really get into commitment and intimacy. And, and so, you know, it's probably a little bit of both of those. Well, that's awesome. I mean, that seems, I, I think people should all have to do that because isn't it so much different when you are dating versus when you actually decide to get married? Absolutely true. I mean, people can be on their best behavior for a long time. I tell people, Really take your time if you're going to get into a committed relationship to the extent really that you get married because you, sometimes you don't really know what you have. It takes time to get to know somebody. Absolutely. And so 
when you're dealing with the people, the couples that are having issues, what sort of process do you do you undergo to get them to open up in front of each other, especially when there's that that troubling tension? Yeah, um, boy, it, it doesn't take very much to get a couple to do what they do. They come in here, and they're usually in, in a state of distress, and for the most part, you know, they're just really problem-focused. They're looking at the conditions of the marriage or the relationship that had broken down, the things that aren't working, and so they want to tell their stories, and I usually let them start with telling their stories. So you give partner A the the floor and partner B listens and then partner B speaks and partner A listens and then you facilitate the conversation? Yeah, I, I, I do that. I'll start off with just hearing sort of what the presenting issues are for each of them separately and give them each space to talk about that. Yeah. Um, you, know, you know, oftentimes in marriages, they'll, they'll be presenting symptoms. They'll really be presenting sort of what they've been dealing with on a regular basis. Most oftentimes they're focused on what the other person is doing mm. or not doing. And I'll listen to that for a little while, but I'm really not that interested in it. Interesting. Mm-hmm. And is that because it's really not about the other person? It's, it's, it's really effective relationships are almost never about the other person. So it sounds like you're trying to get people to, or you've done this so much, it's easy for you. You navigate them toward what's going on with them. Absolutely. How they're creating the issue or how they're contributing to the creation of the issue, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. in, In effective relationships that I see in marriages that really work, people have a pretty good degree of consciousness around what they bring to the relationship, the place from which they're creating the relationship. So, um, you know, I try, what I'll do is I'll, I'll move pretty quickly off of the stories to get them to commit to looking at the underlying processes. And so what happens when, so for example, I, I, I would imagine you have this scenario where one person's into the counseling and the other person isn't, right? And the person that's into it's probably saying, well, he or she does this and that and this and that. And then you might be getting them to focus more on themselves but the other person doesn't even care. A lot of times that's the case. I mean, usually in a marriage, you know, a person brings, one of the people is very motivated to bring the partner in to fix things and wants to work on things. Um, Sometimes both, but more frequently it's one more than the other. And so for me, in my role, I really want to get the person who's not interested a little more invested. I want to somehow implicate them, you know, get them invested in how they're actually creating this also. Yeah. So it sounds like communication becomes, once you get past all that, all the stories, all the stuff, and you get down to the heart of the presenting issues, um, Mm -hmm. you move more toward how they communicate with each other? Uh, Yeah, that's part of it. I, I, you know, hmm, what I usually do is I I will do what is sort of like a mapping. I will start off in the couple sessions with interviewing the individuals and understanding their history. So, so do you do that alone? Do you, take, do you separate them or do you do it I together? Do not, I do it together. Absolutely do it together. Okay. And I want each partner to understand the other more. I want them to understand the lenses and the way they're making meaning of the relationship and themselves in it. So usually these are very intergenerational types of processes. And so the patterns in relationship, for the most part, really do evolve out of a person's history. 
Mm-hmm. And this is interesting for people because then it's a little bit of a different way of looking at it. It takes the focus off of the emerging symptom. Now, granted, if the symptoms are really urgent, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to be irresponsible and not look at that. But for the most part, these are patterns that have been in place for a while. And so I'll, I'll go to the history. I'll do an extensive history, a mapping of one person in front of the other to start to get some empathy and understanding. Then I'll do it with the other partner. Do you ever find that history repeats itself? I mean, I know it's a cliche, but someone ends up, let's say it's they're, they're marrying someone like their father or their mother, or they're marrying they're on their second marriage and it's the same kind of guy or girl they were married to before. Uh, history always repeats itself to the extent that we're not aware. Hmm. People are very conditioned. They're very patterned, especially in relationships. And so that's a big piece of the work, you know, getting to understand the underlying conditions that are pushing people into relationship. So how do you get someone past that? How do you get someone to not deal with their history in that way, to change that path, to take the other road less traveled that they're not used to or conditioned to take? (laughs) It's like getting someone to evolve. It's like um, getting someone to wake up to a very conditioned history. And I think that, you know, that that's what makes, that's the wonderful piece of it. It's moving people out of a very conditioned, default, sort of a literal historically based pattern into something that is really much more about choosing in the present. So if you were to give people advice that are listening right now about that and have them really look at the fact that they are repeating history, what couple things could they do to really look inside themselves and, and, and make a better choice? I, I think it's that thing. It's, it's the piece that what makes a person trustworthy in relationship is the extent to which they know themselves well. Mm-hmm. And so a person who is invested in some degree has some method for becoming more aware you know, that's the basis for a really healthy, loving relationship. Self-awareness um, really promotes the, that sense of being present, of being conscious, not so driven by unconscious forces. Most of what I discover in relationships that aren't working well is that there are, um, there are unresolved pieces of pain. You know, there's old woundedness from the past um, showing up in the relationship. You know, that, that, the premise for most of the couple's work that I do really has to do with um, finding out what unresolved parts of a person's history are showing up in their intimate relationships. Right, so if they had some abuse as a child or something. It doesn't even have to be abuse, quite honestly. I mean, it's just, you know, it, it can be unresolved pains or wounds or um, neglect, you name it. Which sure. Is part of, it's part of the fallibility of the human condition. Or maybe a parent said, you know, you're not good enough or something, you know, or a teacher said you're only a B-minus student. Well, now so you're, putting, you're putting your finger on probably one of the most, toxic influences in relationships that I see. And that is um, in relationships where people have an underlying sense of devaluation or unworthiness or uh, um, unlovability, which is not uncommon, these types of insecurities. Boy, the, the, 
the function almost of an intimate relationship is to discover those places in a person. So they might say something like, well, you know, it's too late for me. I'm never going to find love or I don't deserve love or I'm flawed and they're going to figure me out. So therefore I'm not lovable. If they can say those things, they're already on the way to moving out of it. Oh, well, good. <laughs> That's good. Most, to know. <laughs> most of the people, if you think about, if you think about the most toxic aspect of the ego of a person who comes in and, and really feels flawed and they really feel like they're unworthy, then that shows up in relationship in very um, indirect ways. So if I have unworthiness and I bring it into a relationship, it's something that I guard. It's a vulnerability. I may not even know that it's there. To the extent that my partner then approaches it through the process of commitment and intimacy, it's that sort of into me see thing. Mm -hmm. As we dive in deeper to intimacy, the vulnerability for me around that, what we might call the myth of inadequacy, starts to light up. Now, people don't like that. That's very painful. And mm -hmm. so every human has ways of defending from that feeling. And that, those defense patterns are really what I see manifesting in relationships. And those exist along what we call the fight or flight path. Yes, the fight or flight. Do, do you recommend fighting in a relationship? Because a lot of people don't do that. Um, that's an interesting one. You know, I guess it, it, to me it's almost like the place from which you're fighting. I, I think conflict is healthy and natural. And conflict simply means we're different people, we have a difference of opinion, and we're going to sit down and stay in our prefrontal cortex, <laughs> and, <laughs> and we're going to and we're going to figure it out. And so I think conflict is wonderful. Um, I think to the extent that a person is provoked, say you know, like uh, for example through the inadequacy line, and they fight from there, that's a huge problem because they're really not being honest with what's really happening. Mm -hmm. Those defensive strategies are they're sidetracking, and they're usually uh, they, they're either sort of a movement toward blaming, externalizing the pain, or they can be sort of the shutdown, you know, the stonewalling, the, the, the turning off, and that's a flight path. Now, both of those are very problematic in relationship and very common. So how, how do you get past that? I mean, I have to admit that as a woman, I in my past relationship would, would shut down. Sure. And it was my protective, I don't want conflict. I don't, I want the kids to be feeling like everything's fine, even though, in, even though it wasn't. So how does someone deal with that when, when it's very hard for them to step forward and really be heard? I think you need help. You know, I, I think this is very well, thanks hard. a lot. <laughs> I think it's very hard to do on your own. I mean, as a woman, especially if you're in a relationship where somebody's a fighter and, and that, you know, those kinds of abusive relationships or those kinds of relationships where the person is insecure and they, and they come after you and they're verbally difficult and, and can be abusive, you know, then, then fighting is not the right thing to do because it just causes more harm. I think that's where counseling um, you know, getting assistance, I should say, can be very helpful. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So you find your own voice. You have to have your own voice. You've got to be able to speak honestly. And you have to, and if, and if you can't, you know, there are certain relationships where there, it's unbalanced, where not each person is willing to do their work. And those relationships really should come to an end.
Well, it's good you say that because, uh, you know, a lot of the bad raps on therapy are that people feel like they need to be in therapy forever. And I love that you are able to see that and work with people and say, you know what, it's just the balance just is not going to happen here. And so that's very refreshing to know that it's okay to end it for some people who are at that point. It's a beautiful thing, right? So we're really talking about a person's individual evolution, moving from moving, I think, you know, boy, what I've discovered is the function of marriage, the function is Mm -hmm. to uncover, is to move people from, from less condition, from more conditioned states to less conditioned states. So movement out of ego into more loving aspects. So from less conditioning, right? I mean, it, less conditioning would really be equated with being more loving, okay? Mm-hmm. So the more woundedness in all that we have, oftentimes the less loving we are. If a person's not willing to make that movement in a relationship and one of the other, and the other, and the partner is, then oftentimes that relationship will not succeed. I agree with you. So, and in that discovery, that evolution of finding yourself, would you recommend that as that person's trying to heal, that person who doesn't have a voice, let's say, um, and, and I'm speaking to a lot of women in particular, not that it, it just seems to be more balanced toward women not having as large of a voice as the man. I mean, there are statistics about that, but I'm sure you see it both ways. Would you um, say, you know, would you encourage them to go out and sort of rediscover them and maybe do something, a retreat, um, you know, something stepping way outside their comfort zone, some way to come alive again and really start to value who they are? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, relationships that are unbalanced in that way really tear a woman's esteem down. They stop believing in themselves. And that shutdown process is really the loss of the self. And it doesn't help anybody. It doesn't help the kids. It doesn't help the relationship. And so finding yourself, being authentic, being able to be in a relationship that that really fosters that is huge. A lot of women need to get outside of relationships in order to re-experience that and then bring it back. And if the partner can't do their part, then it's probably not the type of conscious relationship that they want to remain in. Mm-hmm. That makes so much sense. So what happens when someone, you're, you're talking to a couple and they say, well, you know, you did that or you dated this person or you, you had an affair or, and, yeah. and, they, and they can't forgive. Well, you know, one of the things that you're, what you end up, what you end up talking about there is pain. Right. So, so there's been pain in a relationship. There's, a, there's unremediated pain. I, I always get underneath of those things to the pain itself. I mean, Eckhart Tolle calls it the pain bodies. Um, they're unresolved wounds. To focus on the partner and not address the wound is really a problem. It doesn't go anywhere. So, you know, we've got to get underneath it. In my therapy sessions, I, I don't really spend much time with people focusing on the other. Uh, it's a way to stay out of relationship. It's a way to defend and protect. And what it ends up doing oftentimes is locking the pain in. Makes so much sense. Makes so much sense. What are your thoughts on the whole dating process now? I mean, it seems it almost seems like people feel that others are exchangeable. I don't like this one. Yeah, I'll find another one. I mean, what, what do you think that's done to the whole relationship, long-term relationships of couples? 
You know, I mean, the whole field of psychology around relationships is moving back into sort of attachment theory. And attachment really is about the ability to establish secure, loving, empathetic, compassionate relationships over time. What was it? There was just that Harvard review, that longitudinal study of like 70 years, something that talked about, it was a study of men about what is it at the end of your life that really, you know, uh, determines whether or not you're happy. Mm-hmm. And it's loving relationships. Yes. So I, I think that we're, you know, I don't know the outcome of, of what's happening now with sort of these younger generation and the hookups and all the rest of it, but it doesn't really lend itself to to these, these more secure, attached relationships over time, though, you know, we're going to find out. Yeah, we, we definitely will. I, I think they're all kind of crazy. Um, <laughs> how do you deal with, or do you direct or, or advise or, or counsel couples about roles? within the relationship because it seems like for example you know you're dating and everything's great and you don't have responsibilities yet and all of a sudden you have kids and careers and maybe you're both career-minded and you have bills and how do you navigate the role-playing yeah you know this is one of those things that I see more often than not I'm doing this you know with a couple now primarily and so you know we just get all of these expectations on the table you know Mm -hmm before you get married right so otherwise you find out later wait a minute you don't yeah, want kids we don't, <laughs> we don't fit you know, this thing around money around roles around and roles are changing and as much as as much as i'd like to say you know um the roles are changing around here i don't see it as as much i i, I think there's still a pretty traditional role structure that i see mm-hmm. women really seem still to be taking care of the kids i don't see that many men who have said oh wow i really want to get back to being at home and changing diapers and staying at home while my wife's working i mean most of the people around here are dual uh wage earners and mm-hmm. so they're constructing different ways so that they can both they can both have contribution to the domestic side yeah and then also to the work side so i see more balance on that for sure um but as much as women have really embraced power and work i have not seen the reciprocal in terms of men really coming back and embracing family yeah that's interesting i I do feel as a woman there is a pull there is a, a mother pull Mm-hmm. Like a nurturing pull. Mm-hmm. Um, not all women are like that. Um, and not, a lot of women don't want to have kids. And I really celebrate that when they know that. Yeah. Um, and as for the men, I wonder if a lot of that has to do with ego of not <laughs> wanting to be more, you know, at home and at home dad, you know, you go out to the coffee shop and it's mostly women. Mm-hmm. Um, but a lot more people are working from home now. So I think there's a lot more flexibility in the workforce that I'm seeing. And so maybe that way the roles can kind of mold a little better and shift a little bit better. I think it provides more opportunity to do things differently for sure. Yeah. And I think you did touch on something there. I think ego, you know, my experience of couples in in therapy is, um, hmm. I, my the bigger struggles that I have are with male ego, with men's egos, and and with more of a perception of separateness than connection. Mm-hmm. I think my most of the clients who I see, the uh, women just have a much more natural sense of connectedness in the world. I know I'm generalizing a bit here, but but a lot of the struggle that I see with a lot of the male clients I have is just um, an increasing 
just just a more of a sense of independence and separateness. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a real challenge for men. Yeah, the ego, the expectations, societal expectations, you know, everything else that falls on a man that always has been, it's hard to change that. What do you do when, so here's a married couple and all of a sudden someone changes radically midstream. So let, for example, they change religion or, or they decide I'm not going to work anymore. Um, how do you navigate that when they still care for each other? But it's a big elephant in the room. Well, this is, this happens a lot. I mean, they're, they're, I don't know, the committed, the change that occurs over time in a long-term relationship is great. You know, I see, I have, see a lot of people who actually have spiritual awakenings. You know, they'll go off and, and they'll, 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 they'll become different. They, mm-hmm. they, they start to resonate with different interests. And, and it's a, it can be a real challenge for the partner to, um, to evolve with their partner. Um, it, it, it's a real challenge. A lot of relationships don't make it. Mm-hmm. Is, it is that where a lot of the midlife crisis comes in? Yeah, the midlife crisis is interesting, and, and since life, you know, mortality rates are rising and people are living to be 90 and 100 years old, the midlife challenge is really often about reprioritization. You know, it's sort of like, you know, when you get to 55 years old, you realize, I don't have forever. And uh, when you don't have forever anymore and you hear the wolf knocking at the door, uh, you start to think, is this what I want for the next 25 years? Right. And so, you know, midlife is really more about, a redefinition maybe it's picking up things that you've left behind or but um, you know i think we're seeing more of an increase in divorce in 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 people over 50 than mm-hmm. we've seen, than we've seen before because life is longer and people are in better sh- better shape they're taking better care of themselves and they're saying i don't need to put up with this anymore i'm That's not going to take it anymore i'm not going to take it anymore and i'm going to lit i'm going to be on my feet until i'm 75 yeah and yeah. and all that stuffing of you know, and putting up with things. Um, yeah, I, I totally agree with you. And less dependency. You know, one of the things that I see is a real problem for couples in relationship is they, they're mixing up these words, love and dependency. And, and love, as a guy in the city has a, a definition, I think his last name is Berman. And his definition of, of love starts off with a sentence that I, I love. And it says, I'd like to say that I love you, but the truth is I just love. And you happen to get in the way. Oh, that's nice. I love that because what happens oftentimes in these couples' relationship is it's what's failing is condition. What's failing is need. What's failing is I got together with you because you were going to provide these things for me and you no longer do. Mm-hmm. And, and that's not love. Mm-hmm. That's, that's need. That's dependency. So, you know, love to me is, is like the underpinning force in successful relationships that a person has for themselves mm-hmm. and they bring it to the relationship. So it goes back to the self. You better leave. It always goes back to the self. It's funny for me because when um, my long-term relationship ended, I ended up going to the Amazon and living with this tribe for a short period of time and really rediscovering Jody again, mm. because you do get lost. Either you grow with your partner or someone gets lost in the process. And yeah, yeah, I think it's a great idea. I've just spoken with so many women and men who've just done these sojourns or these 
just unplug from society and all the noise and everyone's opinions mm -hmm. and they've just rediscovered themselves and come out amazing loving people who want to just bring love to the equation if you do that you're going to create you the likelihood is creating a wonderful relationship there's an old friend of mine who talks about four categories of relationship it's very simple she said rick it's unhappy alone happy alone unhappy together happy together you gotta get to happy alone yes you won't, you won't tolerate unhappy together so if you think about what attracts people and what attracts you to people it's people who have a compassionate sense a fulfilled purposeful sense and man they are attractive I see a lot of codependency in relationship where people lose themselves they start losing themselves in a relationship mm -hmm. that's a problem for sure yeah I love that happy alone I love that yeah. that that makes so much sense to me I I love being alone. I love being in my relationship now, but I love time alone. It's mm -hmm. very, it's very rejuvenating. Oh yes. To just have that peace. It is fabulous. Um, one of my, one of the old family therapy pioneers, Murray Bowen, he basically talks about, you know, a couple of driving forces in life and, and there, one of them is autonomy and independence. And the other one is connectedness and cohesion. And we need both healthy couples have healthy independence mm -hmm. and they flow between those two poles as the tasks of life evolve and one is not a threat to the other and so the healthy couples that i see i do promote both mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. i love that rick that's so great mm -hmm. this has been so helpful i i want to talk about a few other things you're doing which i'm really curious about you have a book coming out i think it's the button theory well, a little bit of a working title, a little okay. bit of a working title there. I've been working on it for quite some time. Um, it's, it's one of those, you know, you've written some books, so this yes. book has, has had a life of its own, and I'm never satisfied with it, and I keep changing it, and my you know, editor says, just publish the darn book, and you can write the next one after it. So, um, yeah, the button theory is, is, uh, is really a lot of what we're talking about already, that, that you know, we all have unfinished business, um, it, it starts out with a premise that there are really two selves, a conditioned self, which is sort of what we call ego, and there's an unconditional self. And you can call that whatever you want. And the unconditional self can be, you know, your divine nature, higher power, soul, spirit, creativity itself. It doesn't really matter. The connected self is the unconditional self. It is connected. The idea is that we are all connected. And from the conditioned self, which is equated with ego, uh, we're separate. And mm -hmm. so we're trying to evolve um, from this experience of this perception of separateness into an understanding of what really is true, and that is connection. And, and that's evolving from, you know, again, this conditioned ego into a self that is less conditioned, and it's in everybody's best interest. So this happens in... Uh, it happens, the, the most profound place that you see it is marriage. Hmm. Uh, you know, marriage is probably one of the most provocative places to stimulate these unfinished pieces. And so I call marriage, you know, the function of marriage is the place where, where we have the opportunity to evolve more than anywhere else. Um, and so, you know, buttons are unfinished pieces that our partners are our guides to. 
<laughs> Interesting. I mean, you know, another trend I've been seeing, and I can't wait to see read that book, mm-hmm. is that um, a lot of people just aren't getting married. Yes, that's true. And in a way, it's kind of freeing because maybe they haven't gotten over all of those expectations, those that role playing. And if they jump back into a marriage again, boom, they fall back into it. It's a challenge. There's no doubt about it. I, I mean, there's so much more freedom in the culture to choose relationships that aren't really about marriage. I do love the idea of commitment because I think there's something about commitment that, that provokes these deeper levels. You know, if, if we remain on superficial levels in relationships, it's easy to walk away when some of these things are triggered, when some of these things are provoked. Mm-hmm. But, but that's the, the nature of the committed relationship really forces our evolution. I love that too. I mean, you could probably remain guarded to a point, right? Maybe not opening up your entire soul if the full commitment isn't there. That's right. It's easier to walk away. If, if someone's pushing on something that you really don't want to look at, that you need to look at, you'll walk away. Yeah. So I, I love that. I love that. I have a friend recently who told me, well, my, I've been with my guy for 18 years and 10 years ago, he asked me to marry him. And I said, yes. And we never did. And guess what? We just got married and I am more excited and in love with him than I ever thought I would be. He asked me again and I said, yes, and we did it. And the difference in her demeanor, the love that comes out from her, the, the relief, the, the, the beauty she was more beautiful to me. Yeah. Um, it really was exciting. Just yeah. really exciting. It's thrilling. I do a lot of, um, so I'm a minister too, right? Because, you know, yes. that's what ends up happening. And I've married a number of people. And we use this, you know, this is the premise. This is, this is what marriage is about awakening. It's about moving from, you know, less separate ways of, of experiencing ourselves to more connected and loving and compassionate ways of being. And so, you know, it's, it's a marriage is still a wonderful thing. It just depends on, on how you understand it. Yes, no, I, I, I totally agree. So what is the human systems consulting and the partnership doctors? Uh, yeah, human systems consulting. I came up with that name um, 25 years ago because I'm a systemic thinker. I love love looking at systems and I know how embedded things are and how related things are. The individual separate way of seeing things just never fit for me. And so, you know, I got into very early um, looking at individuals through family systems lenses. And so human systems consulting is just what it is. It's consulting with whether it's families, partners, you know, executives, etc. I look at things in a very systemic way. And that evolves out of cybernetics and systems theory and family systems theory and psychology. Very cool. And then how about the partnership doctors? Partnership doctors was, is, was applying very systemic ways of looking at um, treatment for couples. And for I, I take this very same model and apply it to C-level organizations. So CEOs, they have to have ownership and investment up to a certain level in order to really um, use these concepts because, you know, they have ownership. They're not going to walk away. And so they're invested. And so I make people look deeply sort of into these, in these same ways, into the way they organize relationships in their business. Oh, that's brilliant. It's the same, it's the same um, underpinning. It's the same philosophy. 
Mm -hmm. That's mm -hmm. awesome because, and they all have personal relationships too. So they're probably taking it home with them <laughs> and applying it. That's what they do. Oh, it's so interesting with these people. You know, once you start talking about it, they become very interested because people want to thrive. They want their relationships to be good. Yes. Sometimes they don't know how to do it. They've studied harder to get their driver's license than to understand, you know, the way marriage and relationships organize. So they're really starved for the information. Sure. So if you could think, Rick, of one big Masogi type thing that a couple could do to really leapfrog that closeness or to get over that tension, is there like one main thing you would suggest that couples do, whether it's go on an adventure together, whether it's sit down face to face and face your fears? I mean, it, what is that one big thing they could do that for listeners now that are struggling and maybe aren't in therapy and should be? based on a lot of what you've talked about, is there one thing they could do today that would really help? I mean, I think the number one thing anybody needs to do in a relationship is, is stop blaming their partner. Ask, and, and look, I know people are in abusive relationships, and I know that all relationships aren't balanced. And if you're in an abusive relationship, you need to get out of that abuse somehow. You've got to find a way to not allow that to go on because it completely tears people down. So I'm not saying find out the way you're contributing to why your husband is abusing you. It's not what right. I'm saying. But in relationships where that doesn't exist, you have to ask yourself, you know, how am I creating this? How am I contributing to the creation of this, of this unhealthy dynamic? If, you can, if each of you can start looking at that, it's the only way to change a human system. If I start behaving differently with you, you can't behave in the same way to me. Mm -hmm. And that's the starting place. Self-awareness, where this is coming from, that's the starting place. I love it. You're so helpful. I, 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 so many people are going to be excited to hear your advice and apply it to their lives. Rick, thank you so much for being on the show. I can't wait to have you back again. Thank and you. you are amazing. I wish you so much success with the book. I can't wait to get a copy. Uh -huh. And for all of you listening, thank you for being on the Masogi Method. And thank you to Rick for being our resident psychologist and therapist. And we will see you next time. Right now, you can get both Sprint's unlimited plan and the all-new Samsung Galaxy S10 included for just $35 per month per line for five lines. All you need is approved credit and an 18-month lease. No trade-in required. Visit a Sprint store, Sprint.com, or call 800-SPRINT-1. Phone $15 a month after $22.50 a month credit. Apply within two bills. If canceled earlier, your main balance due. Unlimited basic after $6.30.20. Pay $32 per month per line for five lines with auto-pay data deprioritization during congestion. Speed maximums. Use rules and restrictions apply. Right now, you can get both Sprint's unlimited plan and the all-new Samsung Galaxy S10 included for just $35 per month per line for five lines. All you need is approved credit and an 18-month lease. No trade-in required. Visit a Sprint store, Sprint.com, or call 800-SPRINT-1. Phone $15 a month after $22.50 a month credit. Apply within two bills. If canceled earlier, remain a balance due. Unlimited basic after $6.30.20. Pay $32 per month per line for five lines without a pay. Data deprioritization during congestion. Speed maximums. Use rules and restrictions apply.